Corbynism, What Went Wrong by Martin Thomas, published by Workers' Liberty, June 2021, with 23 chapters, some short and some long, starting on page 5, the introduction. On 12 September 2015, an excited crowd moved to Parliament Square to hear Jeremy Corbyn make his first street appearance as Labour leader by speaking at a demonstration for asylum seeker rights. At the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre, Corbyn had just been announced leader of the Labour Party by an election landslide. Young people there agreed that they must now get involved in week-by-week organising. Voting Corbyn for leader and waiting for him to become Prime Minister was not enough. The shock of the 2008 economic crash and the tension of the seven years of neoliberal recovery via austerity since has had finally stirred up a big left-wing response in Britain. The biggest new political surges since 2008 internationally had been right-wing, the pre-Trump but proto-Trump Tea Party in the USA from 2009 Modi's election in India 2014 and so on. Now in Britain, there was something like the Indignados movement in Spain from 2011. Syriza in Greece, which had surged from 2011, won an election in January 2015, but then signed a new austerity deal in July 2015. Or the Sanders movement in the USA. Sanders started his campaign for the 2016 Democratic nomination in April 2015. This was more sudden, but looked stronger than the others. The left had, or had apparently, won the Labour Party, a party with some organisation in every corner of England, Wales and Scotland, and with over a century of roots in and links into the British working class. Life had been dwindling or slight in the Labour Party for 20 years since Tony Blair signalled a shift by abolishing its old socialist Clause 4 in 1995. In fact, dwindling grievously for 30 years since Neil Kinnock consolidated his holes in the aftermath of the Vinus defeat in 1985. Now Labour had come back to life. Its membership rose to nearly 400,000 by the end of 2015. It would remain above 400,000 through to 2021 and peak at nearly 600,000 in late 2017. Despite many moves by Blair and Brown to weaken Labour's ties to the trade unions, those ties had survived in some shape and support from the big trade unions had been a factor in Corbyn's victory. The Tory party had won the general election in May 2015 on a manifesto of continued social cuts and with the votes increased above when they became the biggest party in the May 2010 election. Now the Tories looked not so strong at all. A little over four years later, on 13th of December 2019, Jeremy Corbyn announced he would resign as Labour leader. He eventually handed over to Keir Starmer, on 4th of April 2020. In the intervening months, which included the outbreak in Britain of the COVID-19 pandemic, he acted only as a caretaker, saying little. It was not a passing on the Bennet full of honours. It was a route, 
when an, a poll in December 2019 asked people how Corbyn was doing as leader of the Labour Party, 81% said badly or very badly, and only 4% very well. The nearest to a Corbynite candidate in the ensuing Labour leadership election, Rebecca Long-Bailey, did poorly with a politically limp campaign and 27.6% of the vote. The winner, Keir Starmer, did not stand as anti-Corbyn, praised Corbyn for making Labour an anti-austerity party and presented himself as left-wing. Yet his victory has been followed by a blanding down of Labour criticism of the Tories, a turn to the right on many issues, a new flood of arbitrary suspensions of activists and a decline in Labour Party life. Local meetings, even online, were banned on virus precaution pretexts from March to July 2020, and in some, though not all, areas have shown only reduced life since then. Labour Party membership in August 2020, on the most accurate count available, individual member ballots distributed to the national executive elections, was 495,961, not very different from June 2018, probably higher than real figures before the June 2017 general election. Some left-wingers have quit, but most have stayed. The September 2019 Labour Party conference was the most left-wing since the 1980s. The human basis of that leftism is dismayed and demobilised for now, not disappeared, or not yet. The Black Lives Matter demonstrations in June and July 2020 showed that there are still lots of young people ready to come out on the streets for left-wing ideas, or, more accurately, those demonstrations, and the school students' climate strike speaking in September 2019 showed new generations of young leftists. An 18-year-old marching to kill the police bill in 2021 would have been only 12 when Corbyn won his 2015 poll. The pandemic and lockdown from March 2020 stifled big industrial disputes, including a planned postal workers' strike, which would have been Britain's weightiest industrial action for many years. But a spate of refusals to enter unsafe work areas, essentially assertions of workers' control, running through 2020, strengthened union organisation and membership in many workplaces. Accumulated anger over the Tory government's floundering and bluster in the pandemic will fuel further revolt. We can't predict when and how. There's no return to dead calm. But the left that was jubilant and confident in September 2015 is dismayed and disarrayed now. A little over a year after Corbyn withdrew as leader, Labour did badly in the elections of 6 May 2021. The OZ operator Peter Mandelson seized on the occasion to demand a new push on the old Blairite programme of sidelining or neutralising Labour Party conference and marginalising the unions. There is potential to push back Mandelson and those in Starmer's inner circle who think like him, but the left is on the back foot. Something went wrong. This book explores why and how. Page 7, Chapter 2, The Real Lost Promise The argument in short is this. The great promise opened by September 2015 was not, as too many thought, a smooth route to 
GC 4pm, Corbyn as a Prime Minister, and then to socialism. No such smooth route was ever possible. The great opening was for a rebuilding of the labour movement at the base, both ideologically and in organisation in workplaces and neighbourhoods. That rebuilding would have made many other things possible, including the election of a reform Labour government led by Corbyn and the implementation and consolidation of reforms. Without that rebuilding, the GC4PM strategy was never going to bring good fruits. There was some rebuilding. For the first time in a long while, the Corbyn period showed that a left-led Labour Party, not obsessed with tracking the centre ground, could be popular. It freed discussions to go on beyond puzzling over what would go down well with focus groups and to what was right and necessary. There was some conversion of 2015 voters for Corbyn who had previously been inactive into activists, some reaching out to bring in new activists, some reopening of discussion processes pretty much stifled since the 1990s, some ideological reorientation only not nearly enough, nowhere near enough to reach the critical mass required to produce a powerful enough escalating interaction of workplace struggles, street action, day-to-day public campaigning and work-by-week discussion, debate, education and organisational rebuilding. Corbynism ran aground, eventually on two political issues which had been blind spots in the common stock leftism of 2015. Brexit and anti-Semitism. Those and other blind spots could have been remedied by debate and education, surely not without ructions and crises, but remedied, especially if more young people had been drawn into regular activity. They weren't. As we shall see, Labour's youth and student wings, if anything, declined in the Corbyn period. Adult Labour Party organisations became more lively, but mostly with an influx of older people already formed politically by previous decades. Only a meagre culture of debate and education developed. To see why, let's pick up the story from 2015 and first see how Corbynism kept afloat from then to 2019. We will then see how it became more and more fatally waterlogged. Chapter 3, page 7. How Corbyn won in 2015. Labour had done badly in the May 2015 general election. The Labour left had done especially badly. Before the May general election, John MacDonald had attempted to assemble a left platform group to present a left profile there. The attempt flopped dismally. Activists around Solidarity and Workers' Liberty initiated a socialist campaign for a Labour victory. That got a reasonable response, but not very much a minor but, but very much a minority one. Ed Miliband resigned as Labour leader. The main candidates to replace him, Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper, started to compete in promoting themselves as even more right wing than they were already known to be. John MacDonald wrote that it was quote, the darkest hour that socialists in Britain have faced end quotes, for many decades. Darkest, as it turned out, was not accurate. It is easy to underestimate the potential of dispersed and thin-spread shifts to the left. Years of of small meetings, difficult literature sales, 
and such can make left-wingers think that everyone out there is uninterested, when maybe we just haven't deployed enough energy to make left activity accessible and give it pulling power, and those out there haven't been confident enough to turn a tentative interest into consistent activity. Student protests in November and December 2010 had drawn over 50,000. Big marches had accompanied the public sector strikes over pensions in 2011, and maybe 400,000 joined the TUC demonstration in March 2011. The public sector strikes were allowed by the union leaders to fade away into defeat. Local anti-cuts campaigns big in 2010-11 dwindled in the years after, and the university campuses subsided from 2011 but demonstrations on cuts and on the NHS continued large. There had also been a slow burning and unspectacular shift to the left within the Labour Party since 2010, with many activists quietly angered by Ed Miliband's retreat from the soft leftish promises on which he had won the leadership. Burnham and Cooper miscalculated all that. Their pitch was that Labour had lost in May 2015 because it had been too left-wing, and they would pull Labour back to the right. A flurry among Labour members, mostly in cyberspace, demanded a left candidate for leader. No one at that stage imagined a left candidate could win. Many thought there should be at least a voice of protest in the leadership battle. John MacDonald refused and was cool on the whole idea of a left candidate. Ian Lavery refused. He had already opted for Andy Burnham. John Ticket Trickett refused. The left-wing journalist Owen Jones argued that the left should not try to run a candidate because that would expose it to being crushed. The pressure from Labour members was sufficient that eventually in a meeting of left MPs, MacDonald told Corbyn, it's your turn, and Corbyn assented. Enough soft left MPs under pressure from their local members agreed to nominate Corbyn that he reached the necessary MP nominations quota with a few mavericks and a few right-wingers who thought that having Corbyn in the contest and defeated in plain view would boost the credibility of their favoured contestant. When Corbyn offered to stand, writes Alex Nunns in his book The Candidate, quotes, he was volunteering in all probability for no more than a couple of weeks of lobbying and media appearances, a chance to raise the issue of austerity, and when he failed to make the ballot, to demonstrate that the leadership action rules were rigged against the left. Labour's right wing had in 2014 changed the rules for Labour leader elections to make them simple one person, one vote operations among Labour's members and registered supporters. The right wingers did that because as they peered out at the populace through the opaque windows, of the world of Parliament, lobbyists, the media, think tanks and PR, the only worlds many of them had known in adult life. It looked to them as if Blair Brown type babble commanded wide support which would help them outflank Labour movement activists. They were utterly wrong. The right wing pitch of Burnham and Cooper's campaign signalled to the union leaders a danger that they would be excluded from political influence even more thoroughly than under Blair. The union leaders had accommodated to Blair and Brown, though many vexedly from 2005 at least. 
But neither Burnham and, and Cooper was Blair. Neither commanded the, the deference a prime minister or someone who looked like they would become prime minister soon could get. Burnham and Cooper themselves may have thought that conciliating the union leaders was unnecessary or even undesirable, bringing a danger of being stigmatised as the union's candidate. Unite leader Len McCluskey had initially favoured Burnham, but soon backed both the biggest unions, Unite and Unison, and many smaller unions backed Corbyn. They did not get out many affiliated supporter votes for the ballot, but they provided money and resources and credibility for the Corbyn campaign. 15,800 people, many of them new to regular politics, volunteered for the Corbyn campaign. Starting from zero, it became a bigger operation than any of the establishment candidate campaigns. The Corbyn campaign, unexpectedly both for its organisers and its opponents, became a condensation point for a large cloud of political sentiment. Labour Party individual membership had fallen to an all-time low of 156,000 in late 2009. It ticked up to 194,000 by late 2010, with influxes, generally of people a bit to the left of the norm of the 2009 rump membership after the 2010 election and after the election of Ed Miliband as a new leader seen as more union-friendly. The Blair continuity candidate David Miliband had won a 44-30% majority over his more soft-left brother among individual Labour members, and Ed Miliband won overall thanks to a 41% to 28% lead among affiliated union members. But Labour membership then stagnated until 2015 at around 200,000. New people, almost almost all leftish, applied to join and rejoin as the 2015 leadership contest proceeded. Acting Labour leader Harriet Harman sent all Labour MPs the names of the recruits in their constituencies and asked them to weed out known leftists. The compliance unit at Labour HQ barred hundreds or maybe thousands of recruits and summarily expelled, without charge or hearing, maybe dozens of established members known to be left-wing, but eventually was overwhelmed by the scale of the influx. 294,000 individual members, almost a 50% increase on the figure before the 2015 general election, was entitled to vote for leader and 246,000 of them voted. Even the pre-2010 members had edged leftwards. Corbyn won almost 50% of the individual member votes, way ahead of Burnham on 23% and Cooper on 22%, as well as 58% of the affiliated union member vote and 84% of the registered supporter vote. He might have won even if the electoral system had kept MPs' votes with one-third of the waiting. By summer 2016, with a new leadership election, Labour membership was around 550,000, and it has remained around that level with ups and downs ever since. There's been a drop since the early 2020 leadership election, but so far anyway, no bigger than any other fluctuations seen over the period 2016 to 2020.
page 10, chapter 4. How Corbyn held on in 2015-16. Corbyn and his close associates faced difficult odds after the September 2015 leadership victory. The Tories had just had their first outright general election win for 23 years. Both the Parliamentary Labour Party and the Labour Party machine had over decades become stacked with right-wingers. The Labour Party structure had been changed since the mid-1990s to make it difficult for the membership to prevail against the MPs and the machine. Corbyn's victory was the product of an unintended crack in that system. In some ways, Corbyn's team did well against the odds. Labour MPs attempted a coup against him in June 2016, seizing as pretext on a lacklustre effort by Corbyn in the Brexit referendum of that month and a mediocre performance by Labour in the May 2016 local elections. Labour's vote then was 2% up on 2015 and similar to, to 2014, but 7% down on 2012, which was a relative comparator given the four-year cycles of local polling. 21 members of the Shadow Cabinet resigned. This was the Shadow Cabinet of those who had agreed to serve with Corbyn in September 2015, with many right-wingers when many right-wingers had refused. 172 Labour MPs voted no confidence in Corbyn, with 40 voted against and 17 abstaining or spoiling their ballots. To his credit, Corbyn (coughs) stuck it out and refused to resign. Most of the Labour-affiliated unions, including Unite, Unison and CWU, but not GMB, stuck with him. Their leaders must have calculated that with Corbyn ousted, they would be back to the old days of Blair and Brown, or after Falkirk and Miliband, marginalised and disavowed. Thanks to union support, the National Executive decreed that Corbyn was automatically on the leadership ballot paper, without the impossible task of getting enough MPs to nominate him. The Labour right, confident enough to attempt the coup, proved not confident enough to complete it. Observing Burnham's and Cooper's route in 2015, none of the big figures of the Labour right were confident to run. Instead, they put forward Owen Smith, a figure obscure enough, they hoped, not to be tainted by the old regime. In the meantime, greater numbers of left-minded people had joined Labour. Smith ran a wretched campaign and Corbyn was re-elected on 24th of September with a 60% with 60% of the vote, up from the 58% he had had in 2015. The September 2015 Labour Party conference had been eerily quiet. The delegates had been elected, the motions had been submitted, and the observers had booked their places, all before the Corbyn earthquake. The 2016 Labour Party conference, immediately following the second leadership election results, was a setback. Apparently distracted by the leadership election, the Corbyn team failed to take up a set of limited but useful democratic reforms to Labour Party structure, which the affiliated unions were willing to back. Instead, the right wing, in a last-minute coup, coup, pushed through a number of anti-democratic changes. 
in particular one declared it a crime under Labour Party rules for councillors to vote to defy Tory government budget constraints. The Corbynites left wing from their constituencies provide a little push in the opposite direction at the 2016 conference. That was not because it was too weak in numbers, though an impressionistic assessment says that the leftward shift among constituency delegates which developed across the Corbyn period and reached its heights in 2019 was still weak in 2016. It was not even because the left was not organised, rather because of the way it had been organised. Momentum had been set up in late 2015 as an attempt to regroup the Corbyn leadership campaign's grassroots support. For reasons which we will examine later, it ran itself more or less solely as defence guard for Corbyn. It was willing and indeed effective in getting out the Corbyn vote in the 2016 leadership election, but for fear of embarrassing Corbyn, had no wish to push policy debates at the conference or to clash directly with the big unions which had gone, th- gone along with the anti-democratic rule changes. Momentum organised little at the conference itself, focusing it instead on a fringe festival. Corbyn's team signalled at the conference that they would not push to turn Labour against Trident replacement or against NATO, and would bury that issue for the coming years. Some of the shadow cabinet resigners, Keir Starmer for example, then decided to cooperate with Corbyn again and wait for better times. There was an uneasy pause. Page 11, Chapter 5, The June 2017 General Election In June 2017, the Tories called on called an early general election, hoping to increase their majority and so ease their difficulties with finding a Brexit formula. Corbyn's office wrote a manifesto focusing on increased social spending and abolition of student tuition fees to be financed by taxing the rich. Labour's right-wingers, with the wounds that they had incurred by pro-austerity stances in 2015, still raw, acquiesced. The manifesto evaded or was downright poor on Brexit, immigration, trade union rights, but both voters and activists paid little attention. The Tories' campaign was wooden, promising only strong and stable government, which voters could read as nothing but a strong and stable continuation of the social cuts rolling on from 2010, which by now were causing increasing anger. The Tories actually increased their score slightly as the UKIP votes collapsed from 12.6% in 2015 to 1.8%, but lost their parliamentary majority. Labour improved its score from 25% of the electorate at the start of the campaign to 40% on polling day. Few Labour right-wingers were now up for much beyond setting out their remaining Corbyn years and preparing to regain ground when times became more favourable. Tom Watson, a right-winger elected as Corbyn's deputy in 2015, on the basis of presenting himself as soft-left, tried to launch a right-wing Labour MP's caucus, Future Britain, in March 2019, but nothing came of it. Watson withdrew from politics at the end of 2019. Ian McKinnell, the right-wing general secretary, resigned on March 2018 and was replaced by Corbyn supporter 
Jenny Formby. By December 2019, the Labour right wing was offering no resistance to a Labour manifesto markedly to the left of 2017s. In January to April 2020, all the candidates for Labour leader, and especially Keir Starmer, felt themselves obliged to pitch to the left. Quotes, Jeremy Corbyn made our party the party of anti-austerity and he was right to do so, end quotes, declared Starmer. Far from collapsing in the face of right-wing Labour resistance, and despite its own weak starting point in September 2015, the Corbyn team pushed back the Labour right. The questions are, how did it manage it? And what were the weaknesses within the pushing back which would lead to dismay, disarray and retreat? following so fast after December 2019. Page 12, Chapter 6, The Leader's Office One strength for the Corbyn team was inherited from previous decades and especially from the Blair era. Since 1975, opposition parties had received official money processed through their parliamentary leaders. The personal office, office of the leader of the opposition had gradually become a weightier operation with more full-time political operators, more channels to the media than the party's own HQ staff. Given a fair wind, the office appointed by Corbyn had a good chance of winning the battle of bureaucracies with the party HQ. That strength came with weaknesses. As we'll see, when Corbyn won, he had no cohered team around him, no group of people who had developed cooperation and shared ideas in previous political action. The staff of his leader's office was mostly scraped together from the left margins of the politico-media sphere and from networks at the top of the bourgeois society. The fig- fig- key figure came to be Seamus Milne, who had been working for The Economist and The Guardian since 1981. Any involvement he had with rank-and-file labour movement activism dated back to his days as business business manager of the ultra-Stalinist newspaper Straight Left in the late 1970s and early 80s. When this writer first met him, we were in the same economics evening class. Over time, he drew Andrew Murray and Steve Howell, old associates from his Straight Left days, into the leader's office. By 2019, the word was that in important meetings with other politicians, Corbyn would bring Mill with him, exchange pleasantries, and then let Mill do most of the important talking. The Stalinist heritage leader's office tilted Corbyn noxiously on issues like Brexit and anti-Semitism, and it was predisposed to have little interest in democratising the Labour Party. Party structure did loosen up over the Corbyn years, so by 2019 annual conference was able to debate a lot more motions than before and pass many in more radical forms than the platform wanted, but much of the structure and culture of the Blair years remained. Policy was still seen as being developed by backroom wonks and then announced to a grateful world of shadow ministers rather than primarily debated and decided by party structures. That remained true even for left-wing policies dropped into the December 2019 general election campaign at the last minute, 
free nationalised broadband and payments for women who had lost out on pensions through the Tories' accelerated increase in their state pension age. It hadn't crossed the minds of the leader's office to promote discussions of these measures in local Labour parties, get motions brought to Labour conference and decide them that way. The leader's office depended for its clout on support from the big trade union unions, especially from Unite and indeed on exchange of personnel with them. Andrew Murray, chief of the staff of staff for Unite, became also a part-time worker in the leader's office. Carrie Murphy, who became executive director of the leader's office in February 2016, was a close associate of the Unite leadership. Jenny Formby, who had been a Unite official before becoming a Labour Party General Secretary in March 2018. Page 13, <coughs> Chapter 7, The Unions in the Corbyn Period Unions are the basic mass organisations of the working class. A strong say for them in the Labour Party is good, but this increased say for the trade unions was primarily increased lobbying power for the tra top trade union officials. Trade unions say via elected union delegations at Labour Party conferences controlling their leaders or via elected and accountable union delegates in local Labour Party committees, a major factor in the 1980s, did not increase much in 2015 to 2020. Trade unions' participation in the Labour leadership election which required under the new rules that they adopted in as affiliated supporters was meagre. 72,000 in 2015, 100,000 in 2016, 76,000 in 2020. When the United Union <coughs> held a general secretary election in April 2017, left-wingers -wing voted for the incumbent, Len McCluskey, because at that stage, a victory for the right-wing candidate, Gerard Coyne, would probably have cut short the whole Corbyn experiment. The extent to which Unite's political activity lacked roots in the union membership was shown by the result. McCluskey, <coughs> who in his first contest in 2010 had won with 101,000 votes to 53,000 for his runner-up and 2013, with 144,570 votes to 79,819, now got only 59,067 votes. He, put, he beat Coyne, who got 53,544 only narrowly. Only 130,071 voted, little more than half 2010's 240,000 in a year in a union still claiming over a million members. There was no Corbyn surge, no surge of left activism in the unions to parallel the surge in the Labour Party. Neither Corbyn nor any of the left, Labour left groups of 2015 could at will create such a surge within the unions. They could not change at will the fact that strike figures had been low since the public sector pension strikes of 2011 and that they continued low in 2015 to 2020, particularly low between April 28 and October 2018. They could not change at will the fact that union membership, though still large, 
644 million in 2019 had been stagnant or falling for years. They couldn't, could not even take particular credit for the fact that union, that membership figures revived slightly in 2016 to 19 at the steady slow drop in unemployment figures from 2011 to 2019 was probably a bigger factor there. The Corbyn leadership and groups associated with it, like Momentum, could have done a lot more to encourage working-class action, to get people to see union action as a way to win, to nurture new industrial activists, and to encourage people to chef against and and resolve to get rid of Britain's anti-union, anti-strike laws. As we summed it up in early 2020, Solidarity 534, quotes, The party under Corbyn had done virtually nothing to support strikes and worker struggles, and the same is true of most of its leadership. Shadow Chancellor John MacDonald is a partial exception. Corbyn himself has done much less than you might expect. He has been better than his immediate predecessors as leader, but that was a low bar to beat. He has not been a consistent presence, energetic campaigner, or loud voice in support of strikes. He attended a protest for the last McDonald's strike, a politically safe and photogenic event, but not really an ongoing industrial dispute. In contrast, he largely steered clear of the much more sustained, disruptive and controversial rail strikes against driver-only operation. He attended a junior doctor's demonstration in 2017, but not any picket lines. Most perplexing of all is the picture house dispute going on for two years, 2016-18, at multiple sites, a few tube stops from Parliament. Corbyn's office evaded repeated requests for him to join the picket lines. Corbyn did nothing to help the strike except a short written statement right at the end of the dispute. End quotes. Some left constituency Labour Party CLPs in the Corbyn years were active in support of strikes, like Sheffield Healy CLP in support of railways, railway workers, rail workers strikes against driver-only operation. Many left Labour members were active in strike support as individuals. Still, even at CLP level, the rate of mobilisation was not high. There were more Labour Party banners on left demonstrations against cuts for the NHS, against Boris Johnson's attempt to prorogue Parliament in August to September 2019, on climate change in September 2019 and so on, than in the Blair Brown or Miliband years. But nowhere near as many as had been on the streets in the Labour Party's previous list the previous left surge in the early 1980s.